What is happening now is、um, I call it lawlessness because you know you cannot find or seek any protection anywhere. The regime is not willing to start any new negotiations. They think they are in control of the situation as long as they apply repression. The authorities are kind of trying to show that they don't really care. You know, they're not scared of the sanctions, but at the same time, they're asking to not to impose the sanctions. I think the most kind of problematic part behind it all is that they don't have a future vision of Belarus. They don't offer a positive agenda in any kind of way. Welcome to another episode of the Naked Pravda, Medusa's only English language podcast. I'm Eilish Hart, the news editor for Medusa in English, and this week I've put together an episode that looks back on the past six months of opposition protests in Belarus. The protests began in August 2020 when election officials declared that Alexander Lukashenko had won his sixth consecutive presidential term. The mass demonstrations were met with a violent police crackdown, which, in combination with the onset of winter, led opposition protesters in Belarus to adopt new tactics for expressing their discontent. To find out more about the current political Situation. I invited two experts on the show to talk about how the opposition movement has evolved and how Lukashenko's regime has managed to withstand the protests. We started our conversation by talking about the All Belarusian People's Assembly, a congress of delegates from across the country that takes place every five years. This year's event was held on February 11th and 12th, the same week the opposition protests entered their sixth month. It was the first major event since the elections for the for the regime. So for them, institutionally, they were setting quite a lot of expectations for different、uh, societal groups in Belarus. That's Maria Rochova, a doctoral researcher at the University of Oslo, whose work focuses on symbolic politics and identity in post-Soviet autocracies. Previously, there were talks about that they will announce certain constitutional reforms. They were also creating different expectations that they would offer. Certain concessions, institutional concessions. So overall, there was this kind of moment from the elections leading to this specific event. But I think it's also important, kind of, as a symbolic kind of aspect of、uh, what it represented. From a more symbolic perspective, I think they were trying to create a gesture. That is that is aimed at the remaining supporters of the regime in Belarus. So they were presenting it to people who might not, who were not vocal, who were rather、uh, silenced by the protesters. So they were trying to to show here there is a forum for you.、Uh, so they created you know special bags for them. They created as well a buffet from them. So they are as well trying to kind of market、uh, as their own kind of. Place and they were talking directly to this specific audience, but at the same time,、uh, all this kind of things that as、uh, it were we expected from this assembly didn't create a, a moment for the regime later. So they、uh, they announced kind of constitutional changes that were not even presented. Again, there were talks about that there will be、uh, a constitutional amendment. Amendment. It will be drafted. They also didn't create. It didn't bring any specific timeline of、uh, any kind of constitutional changes. So overall, I think it was just mostly a symbolic, very propaganda type of event. 
that created a lot of uh, media noise in Belarusian state media. It sounds like this is kind of an event for Lukashenko to get up and kind of speak to his political base. Is there anything concrete that he's offering them in terms of incentives, I guess, to legitimize his presidency and keep him in power? I don't think that they are offering anything at this moment. I think mostly they they offer uh, that basically if you offer your consent or you are complicit in uh, in supporting this regime so this kind of complicity will be protected by the regime so i think here mostly it marks that they are ready to protect them in many different ways and they are able to show that they will create them those safe kind of spaces if they're willing to uh, commit to this uh, propaganda messages to the statement that the, the official line proposes those who are not complicit, they should live in danger. They, you know, there might be fines. There might be administrative arrest. Uh, people could, uh, you know, can knock on your doors at any time. But here with us, you're kind of in this kind of safe harbor. I asked a similar question about the purpose of this year's All Belarusian People's Assembly to Hanna Lubakova, a journalist from Belarus who's also a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council think tank. Basically, that assembly was kind of a session of group therapy. Like it, it was important, obviously, for several reasons. Uh, firstly, because Lukashenko promised that the assembly would discuss the constitutional reform, and it did some details about about the reform appeared only towards the end of his speech. So he kind of he's kind of postponing even conversations about the about possible amendments. Uh, and obviously Belarusians expected it to be sooner, but the, the reason why Lukashenko is postponing the reform is because he feels stronger and more confident now. So he doesn't feel that he needs to change anything. Another uh, kind of important aspect of that assembly, it was supposed to be a national inclusive dialogue. Lukashenko himself promised that the entire spectrum of opinions on what's happening in the country would be presented at the assembly. In reality, however, no Lukashenko's opponent was present. There were several messages to, to Russia sent during the assembly. It's obviously because uh, Lukashenko understands how, how important um, is to kind of keep the Kremlin on his side. And he kind of himself many times appealed um, to, to Putin saying that they are in the same boat um, against this, you know, collective um, West presented as the enemy and that protests in Russia are a continuation of the protests in Belarus. So it's important to fight it together. Also, Lukashenko mentioned the conditions under which he would leave. Uh, and he said um, that he uh, would leave if the protests stop and that there would be guarantees for him and his closest circle. Um, but I would say uh, that, well, people in Belarus do not necessarily believe in such uh, promises because, well, Lukashenko, uh, we all know that it's obviously in his interest that the protests stop uh, so that he can say that, you know, uh, it's all fine in the country and there is no dissent anymore. And I would I would say that it might be it might have been a message to Russia again, you know, that, you know, there is some area, there is some room where he can actually uh, reach a compromise and kind of show that he's ready to leave or he's ready to have a constitutional reform, whatever. In reality, he would postpone it as long as he can. I would say that, you know, the assembly also has shown that uh, Lukashenko is not ready for more serious concessions. He's ready to talk about uh, some potential, you know, steps, but it doesn't mean that they would happen. And the less uh, specific 
steps he says, proposes, offers, the longer it allows him to kind of stay in power. Because if he only talks about possible change, it doesn't mean that this would happen. He can, you know, keep talking about this for years. In general, um, his closest circle, as much as they are loyal, obviously, to him, and I mean his power vertical officials and security forces. This is not a monolithic system. There, there are clear divisions between them. Many people defected. Many people left. Also, there are different departments in, in security forces uh, from, you know, obviously investigators, prosecutors to, to this Omon, Gubopik, you know, all these kind of most hardcore law enforcement security forces departments who really committed crimes. So he generally during the assembly said that they also need to have guarantees. So it is clear that, that he would defend them as uh, long as he can. And as you know, an all criminal case was started um, that, that would investigate the uh, murders, deaths of uh, protesters. So it means that Lukashenko is trying to cover, uh, you know, what, what they did. And, and when it comes to, to, to officials, again, right, uh, there are obviously, uh, you know, those most loyal ones, but they would also see at some point that the crisis has to be solved. There is this cumulative effect you know, of um, people maintaining pressure, imposing pressure on Lukashenko, the authorities on, on you know, um, kind of, again, security forces, power vertical. Um, and, and this would increase, this would grow. And, and um, there would be a moment at some point when they have to would have to deal with it, not only fighting with those visible reasons of kind of visible signs of the distance, such as protests, but also fighting with actual reasons for people why they are coming out on the streets. People have been protesting in various forms for the past six months. As a journalist, what has it been like covering a protest movement for such a long period of time? Well, it's hard for many reasons. The situation, uh, when it comes to media freedom, the situation in Belarus was never good was never op you know, optimistic it was always dire um but i think since uh, even before the elections actually not only since august last year but even before the elections i would say that the, the you know a real war against journalism has started um as you know in may in june um like months before the elections bloggers and journalists were already arrested um and then um it just continued we journalists when we report on the streets um we are being detained for taking part in a protest, even though we have, you know, all these identification signs, you know, that, that we are journalists, we are press. So they are clearly targeting us. Um, there is now a trial against those prominent journalists, Belsa TV journalists, Katerina Andreeva and Daria Shulsova, who just reported live streamed from an apartment about a rally that that was happening on the street, but they were not even there. And they are being accused of organizing, uh, you know, this um, kind of riots and, and disrupting public order. And today, uh, well, on Tuesday, February 16, there is a massive attack on, on journalists, human rights defenders all across the country. More than 30 people are being searched. Their apartments have been searched. So the authorities are just 
clearly trying to desert the field. They're trying to ruin any infrastructure, any ecosystem, um, like anything that, that is kind of still active, still exists and still kind of helps people. They searched the office of the Belarusian Association of Journalists, which is a, one of the most important, you know, professional organization of journalists in Belarus that really helped a lot, you know, many journalists, including myself. Um, and people are, or well, journalists, my colleague, are just um, targeted, obviously, you know, they have been targeted with rubber bullets, with uh, tear gas, they they, uh, they also experienced police violence, and they are kind of targeted um, intentionally, like someone who is uh, kind of active, who is prominent, you know, well-known, might be just detained. after the media is a very kind of clear response that the authorities have had to the opposition movement. And then obviously the demonstrations have been violently suppressed. What other tactics are the authorities using to try and kind of quell dissent? Whatever organization or infrastructure or a platform exists, you know, it's active and helps people. It's it's well known and people use it. The authorities are ju- just trying to crack down on it. Uh, whatever activity is happening. The authorities are cracking down on it. Only this weekend, uh, at least 100 people have been detained. And among those people were, imagine, um, uh, folks who just attended a concert. So the authorities just all of a sudden thought that it's just very dangerous. And, you know, this more than 60 people have to be detained. Um, and also like a few dozen people who went skiing. So they're just, um, yeah, they're just detaining people. And there are cases, you know, there are this, uh, you know, hundreds, dozens of videos that, that we receive, you know, from different, um, cities from different towns showing that uh, people are just being detained for basically, you know, just going out, uh, living their apartments. And this is this atmosphere of fear that the authorities are creating. It works in some way because, well, firstly, people just uh, don't feel any, don't feel safe. They don't feel secure. And because they uh, read, receive so much information about these repressions, you know, happening all over the country, they also feel powerless. What is happening now is, um, I call it lawlessness, because, you know, you cannot find or seek, you know, any protection anywhere. The court will not defend you. The police will not defend you. So that's kind of how it, how it's working, uh, you know, and how what effect it actually has on people, right? At the same time, it also doesn't work <laughs> because uh, because people people um, just understand like that if, if they stop, that would be even worse. And there is this, so now they're applying these guerrilla methods. They, um, you know, put stickers or hold white, red, white flags and then, or go in shopping malls and, and, and sing, you know, some kind of national traditional songs. And then they disperse immediately so that they are not dis- detained. But it, kind of when it, happens in dozens of places, it still imposes a lot of pressure because it just shows that people are not ready to give up and they, you know, still kind of show their discontent. What's also important, what's happening now is that, um, you know, all these kind of courts and trials are happening. Um, and it will be, you know, there will be more of those. Uh, there are currently more than 250 political prisoners, but there are also almost 2000 criminal cases you know, that were launched against 
uh, you know, peaceful protesters or, you know, just people, activists who took part in, in rallies. And what, are we going to end up with more than 2,000 political prisoners? Well, that's a good question. Are these cases from recent arrests or is it just that the judicial system is just getting to them? Any court, you know, any publicity, um, well, firstly, uh, obviously brings people's attention to, to the case of this person, but also provokes more criticism from abroad, from the West, you know, from Western organizations. And if this um, case, um, if they, the authorities give, give up on the case and this person is released, it shows a signal that, uh, you know, for people that they are, kind of don't have to be afraid, you know, that they can continue protesting because it's still possible that the authorities are releasing someone. Uh, if this case is brought to, to the court and this person is given eight years in prison or five years in prison or whatever, it also kind of forces those international organizations to impose sanctions or whatever pressure they can impose, right? Or just to say that they're deeply concerned. But still, uh, kind of, they are, again, postponing this process as much as they can. So um, that's why not so many political prisoners are being on trial. The authorities are trying to leave some room for themselves. Trading of political prisoners is something that Lukashenko has been doing for years. And there are signs that he is coming back to the same procedure, to, to the same idea. The more, you know, he's not uh, decisive, the more he, the longer he pro- postpones the, the actual decision, kind of um, the, the better for him, obviously. But it also it doesn't mean that we have to, as the international community, that we have to follow kind of the same um, logic. I'm just afraid that the West would see some signs of progress. Because he would release one, one person or two. Uh, this cannot happen because, well, these are not only political prisoners. These are hostages. Pressure and threats from the authorities have driven a number of Belarusian opposition figures to flee the country, including Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, who became Lukashenko's main political rival during the 2020 presidential elections. Tikhanovskaya is now living in exile and leading a unified opposition from Lithuania. So I asked my guests to explain how Tikhanovskaya's role in the opposition movement has changed over the last six months. I think her role involved with the results of the election. So she received additional legitimacy, not from the official results, but basically, but uh, from uh, public mobilization campaign after the election. So we still don't know the official results, but the uh, massive election fraud and additional um, election observation helped to to indicate the public opinion that she actually managed to mobilize voters and gain quite a lot of votes in this election. So this definitely helped to legitimize her status as a leader of her of her kind of democratic movement or protest movement in Belarus. But then, of course, there. Uh, this period in post-election that resulted in her forced exit from the country was also problematic. It was it it followed by a number of arrests of uh, leading figures in Belarus, and we ended up with almost all leaders uh, either behind bars or in uh, exile. So she 
I think, took here a leadership role in establishing her, herself in a foreign policy dimension. Her office mainly deals with representation and the lobbying of Belarusian interest in foreign policy, so meetings with foreign leaders and uh, different international organizations who might as well uh, help to maintain Belarus on the political agenda and to discuss sanctions or different initiatives that might help Belarusians and uh, the protest movement in a position. There is, of course, different dynamics. So there is this kind of one one type, which is institutionalized movement who supported her. On the other side, the protest movement became quite diverse, really representing different groups and people who were protesting for uh, not just against the regime, but against the violence, against uh, this massive repressions and ill treatment in detention centers. So, uh, so they might have as well different opinion on who might represent them. Overall, I, I see right now that yes, they still uh, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya represent uh, an important part of Belarusian society. So people who are active protesters, people who still fight against the regime, but they, she might not represent all people involved in the protest mobilization since August. It's very hard to communicate with people because, well, many are just afraid to to get in touch, you know, to have any contacts. And um, despite that, well, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya's team and herself, uh, they have calls literally every week with different social groups inside the country, such as medical workers, students, academics, uh, striking workers, and generally kind of, um, you know, workers at st- state-owned enterprise and so on, like many, many, many social groups. So this is important. Like this means that there is this um, connection, you know, between those people who are based in Vilnius abroad or Warsaw or, or Riga, whatever place that they are based, you know, with those people on the ground. Um, so there is kind of this still some feedback. Um, the work that Svetlana Tikhanovska is doing on the international arena is very important. Um, and actually, if, if we look at those small victories, at those kind of pieces uh, or examples of success that, that, that happened uh, throughout these six months. Um, um, this is also very important. You know, there is this uh, huge kind of delegitimization of Lukashenko. He was not um, accepted as the legitimate leader and the election results uh, were not accepted. Um, while Svetlana Tikhanovska and uh, the Coordination Council were kind of acknowledged as the representatives of, of the people. Also, when it comes to economic pressure or generally pressure, right, there have been three rounds of sanctions um, and some other kind of decisions that were made. Svetlana Tikhanovska's office, uh, the Coordination Council, the National Anti-Crisis Management, they are trying to mobilize uh, this Western kind of reaction and, and they're trying to keep Belarus in their agenda. So this is all very important. And this is something that was not done before, I mean, to that extent at least. So this is actually a success. At the same time, um, more should be done, obviously, inside the country. But this is, uh, you know, something that, that they also kind of understand, you know, that they have to work with different, you know, groups of people, not only active protesters, but those people who are undecided and so on. It just takes time. Um, and, and you cannot do it, uh, you know, everything like at the same time, especially if you're based abroad. The fact that Lukashenko is still in power is very logical. It's very natural. I mean, I did not honestly rationally kind of realistically i could not expect him to leave uh, his office so soon 
and six months is not uh, is not enough uh, apparently to destroy the system. But what has been achieved has to be taken into consideration. I know Tikhanovskaya recently said that the international community should be braver and stronger, and she's been calling for more sanctions. Do you think the Western sanctions are an effective tool, or is it something that the Belarusian authorities can ignore? The last round of sanctions, there were so many hopes put into that. You know those. Um, kind of financial sanctions imposed on Lukashenko's oligarchs and state-owned companies. But in reality, uh, this was not enough at all. And many people kind of laughed and mocked, you know, at this round of sanctions and they did not uh, kind of perceive it as a uh, real support. But even this round of sanctions, the last one, uh, like the authorities are kind of trying to show that they don't really care, you know, they're not scared of these sanctions, but at the same time, they're asking to not to impose uh, the sanctions. So it's kind of, <laughs> you know, very funny. Sanctions are not effective, effective, but please, could you lift the sanctions? To be honest, it's a question I always struggle with because I think sanctions are also this uh, polarized issue among the, among Belarusian experts. So you have people who are absolutely supporting the sanctioned regime and there are people in Belarusian expert audience who are lobbying against any kind of sanction, saying that it doesn't really change domestic politics or has no influence on the political regime in the country. It might lead only to consolidation of the regime if you use sanctions. But for me, I think uh, sanctions might not be a, this kind of a political a political instrument that changes the regime, but it's important signal that indicates that this behavior is not tolerated or will not be tolerated by foreign leaders. And for this, I kind of value sanctions this way that we indicate there is a certain red line and you're not supposed to uh, cross this red line. What we have observed from this situation with Bellary is that sanctions work, but it's, it has to be a rapid response. It is, this response has, has to consider um, political context. It has to address political players that are important for this regime. And uh, they, uh, they have to be unilateral. All countries have to agree to this and quite quickly. And in the situation with Belarus, we have not see, seen that. So we still, we still see this kind of very rigid, very stiff uh, type of policies that is really hard to change in European foreign affairs. At this moment, I think that most of the time, the European Union only responded to the situation. They did, they were not a proactive, uh, type of foreign player who might have helped to shape policies toward Belarus. They always react and, uh, uh, and it takes quite a lot of, uh, lobbying and foreign policy lobbying from the opposition to, to initiate uh, those sanctions. And this takes time and quite a lot of energy. And uh, in the result is not as painful as uh, as it should have been. Tikhanovskaya has also been, you know, consistently bringing up the idea that the West should facilitate some kind of dialogue or act as a mediator between the opposition and the authorities in Belarus. Is this something that is on the table? Or do you think sanctions are 
eliminating that possibility. The l- latest kind of people's assembly uh, has shown that they are not really open and ready to, to have negotiations or to have dialogue. Um, but this is something that obviously can be and has to be achieved. Um, this can be achieved again through pressure, which we've just discussed, you know, through sanctions or economic pressure or any political pressure. And eventually this will lead to dialogue and negotiations because this status quo cannot be maintained. The status quo is too expensive for the regime. You know, they have to invest so much money into security forces or into, you know, kind of not introducing, not doing any reforms. So there has to be a moment when this dialogue will happen. The problem I see now is that there is no political will from the West and no country region is capable of taking responsibility and introducing a united, unified, strong position towards the solution of the Belarusian crisis. And the time, um, you know, the time is ticking. Every day is dangerous for, for Belarusians. You know, throughout the weekend, you know, more than, uh, what, 100 people were detained and, and just people kind of ignore this. I think uh, what eliminates this possibility is the regime is not willing to start any new negotiations. I think they think they are in control of the situation as long as they, as they apply repressions. And I think they just, uh, they consider that Tikhanovska has no leverage on domestic situation. So there is no uh, political body inside Belarus which could represent a united, uh, a united opposition. But at the same time, if somebody will try to establish any kind of political body who will represent uh, a united opposition voice, this, this uh, group will be either jailed or forced again to exile. So overall, I think just uh, no willingness from the regime because they control, they think they control uh, the situation. Second is as well, they get quite a lot. Uh, Lukashenko gets the backing of Russia. So uh, if if there was some push from an important foreign actor, such as Russia, who would force them to either to continue as constitutional kind of reform or at least uh, start a certain type of dialogue or at least a, a forum or something that could uh, create this uh, vision of a dialogue, maybe then they would consider initiating something but overall they just there is no pressure for it from uh, uh, from anyone basically <laughs> except uh, of course uh, the European Union and other foreign actors but from Russia and uh, domestic uh, kind of elites there is no uh, initiative for for this type of dialogue in this situation then do you think that Russia has more leverage in terms of pressuring the Belarusian authorities to resolve the crisis I think that they do have a significant leverage on the regime because right now there's the only not the only but uh, the main uh, backer or the main supporter of Lukashenko. I think overall they are interested in restoring a certain political stability in a way that there is no significant crisis in, that takes form in massive repression. So I think they just don't want to see the picture of people being detained. They don't want to have that 
image can be printed in international media and image that is visible for the international audience. I think they are they don't want to see that. And in this way, maybe they are interested in resolving the situation. But I think Lukashenko overall kind of provides guarantees that this situation is resolved in a way that there is no more significant massive rallies and, and so on. So he's able kind of to sell it to Russia saying that the situation is resolved uh, this way. So it will be interesting whether there's a new kind of meeting between Lukashenko and Putin will uh, result in kind of new demands for, for example, for constitutional reform. While some analysts have argued that the protest movement in Belarus has stalled, others maintain that large-scale demonstrations could resume in the spring. So I asked my guests to weigh in on the likelihood of opposition protesters returning to the streets. With the current level of repressions, I don't know if people are ready to go out to the streets. It doesn't mean that the discontent has stopped not at all. It's hard for me to say what, what would be what would be a right decision to kind of ask people to go out to the streets, you know, knowing that they there would be a crackdown or just postpone this. Um, but I definitely know that this discontent has not stopped. This is confirmed by sociological research, but also that's what, something that I saw before the election. When I traveled across the country and I went and talked to people all over, all over the, you know, these regional towns, um, in Minsk, they were uh, naming so many reasons, you know, they were telling me why they want Lukashenko to leave. You know, they were tired of him. There were so many economic reasons, uh, the pandemic and everything. And they wanted change. And even before the election, I knew that, you know, this society has evolved and this society has changed so much. So there is no way back. I'm just kind of seeing this revolution as something that has just started. It's not like in half a year, in several months, you would destroy the system that that was built for 26 years. It would take longer, uh, but the society is definitely ready. I think there are important days coming up. Uh, so they are symbolic, not uh, not for this specific movement, but they have been symbolic in Belarusian history. Uh, so on the 25th of March, uh, there is a Freedom Day, one of the key dates in the history of Belarusian opposition. Several years ago, it was even possible to organize a big concert dedicated to 100 years of establishing Belarusian People's Republic in the center of Minsk. And now, of course, it just feels, you know, not even possible <laughs> to organize any type of uh, official gathering that will be permitted. So overall, I think uh, we might see some mobilization, but the repressions are so massive that I think that people who still remain in Belarus, they might consider consequences of uh, participating. Right now, I think we have to wait until a certain kind of maybe a critical moment or critical event that might happen. At this moment, I see that there is a lot of, like the data that we receive from public surveys indicates that just there is erosion of public trust in the state institutions. Uh, there is erosion of public trust in any kind of, you know, official institutions. So overall, I, I, th- I see, I see significant discontent that, you know, or that just, just needs a moment or just needs this kind of date to actually erupt. But at the same time, 
it's hard to predict when it erupts and what will trigger such a significant mobilization as we have observed last year. So you mentioned survey data. When you're looking at those numbers, is there kind of an an indication that society is kind of split and polarized? Or is there like a significant undecided segment of the population in terms of like support for the regime or the opposition? Well, the data that I have seen uh, in so far indicates a a significant polarization of society and significant politicization. What it means is that polarization uh, happens in certain kind of who they support. And there are like even three groups, not just supporters of the government and opposition, but also people who are uh, who are prefer not to state their opinion. And this group might grow as well with more mass, for example, mass repression or even targeted repressions. The second part is politicization. And uh, this happens that people are much more aware what is happening in the country. So they do read news, they, uh, they get updates and uh, they critically engage with information. Uh, this is very important because uh, when you have informed public, it's much harder to uh, use propaganda and state propaganda to influence public opinion. So in this way, I think uh, the younger gener- the younger generations are much more uh, critically engaged in in, uh, in societies. They engage with different sources and uh, different media in getting informed. Overall, this data indicates that, well, right now we have uh, like significant, <laughs> this kind of three divisions. So there is like around 20 to 30% supporting uh, the current government and uh, 30% supporting uh, the leadership of Tikhanovskaya or uh, uh, the opposition in exile. And uh, another kind of 30% is this kind of undecided or rather not undecided, but rather silent silent group. The institutionalized opposition or the authorities are either of them trying to appeal to this kind of, like you said, undecided or silent segment of the population in any way? It's an interesting question. I think they do by trying to marginalize uh, different oppositional voices. So they use very blunt type of propaganda. Like several days ago, there was a, they were trying to put a like a TV a movie with some kind of uh, patriotic lyrics, and then they are trying to portray different people in 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 bad light. So they're trying to marginalize them, but in very, in very blunt and uh, in a strange manner. I'm not sure how responsive people would would be to those messages. But overall, I think it's just. Uh, they're trying to appeal, maybe, but in, in their own way. I'm not sure how convincing this messaging is for this particular group. And I think the most kind of problematic part behind it all is that they don't have a future vision of Belarus. They don't offer anything, a positive agenda in any kind of way. So what they do is they criticize, they try to marginalize, they, uh, they use as well different conspiracy theories. Uh, so overall, maybe... It worked in some kind of other moment, but in that moment when you need something positive and a kind of a futuristic a bit vision, they just don't provide it. And uh, being kind of 
a citizen and a voter, I, I just I don't want to buy into something like this. I, w- I think that what they should have developed is as well by bringing a new vision and just don't have it. Well, for the past years, the uh, Belarusian authorities have stopped communicating with the people, actually. Um, I think after 2015, Lukashenko really kind of started ignoring, uh, you know, what the population, uh, what citizens think, because there were no major protests and they, they kind of... Um, you know, they did not have any uh, positive agenda. They did not really ha- have anything to offer the people. They don't seem to appealing to anyone, really. You remember the inauguration of Alexander Lukashenko was a secret one. So he did not, he invited, what, a few, you know, hundred people and, and held it just for himself. The assembly was also kind of held for, for, for himself. You know, there were 2,700 delegates who were just clapping and, and, you know, nodding. He, did not appeal to the middle class. He did not appeal to businesses. He basically said at the assembly that, you know, everybody can be detained, just do not protest. You know, we, we can put you all in prison, which means that he doesn't really care about the economy himself. You no, know, the, this revolution is obviously about dignity, about human rights, about political rights, but people also will have to eat. And, um, you know, the more, um, economic crisis, you know, continues, the, 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 the more people would, would be, you know, dissatisfied and kind of not scared, not afraid to, to lose, you know, their jobs, whatever. His kind of inability to listen to people and to agree to any, um, uh, concessions is also a great mistake of his. So, so eventually, you know, it will, it will bring more discontent. This political repression, they targeted not only uh, you know, uh, political organizations. They really targeted civil society at large. It's like from cultural initiatives to even businesses that supported actually, uh, the opposition and who were involved in strikes or who closed their businesses on certain days. So, uh, those, uh, actors who shaped uh, quite a lot of, you know, public space. They shaped how Minsk, for example, looked like in the, in recent years. They, they were forced to close. They were forced to, uh, to flee or to relocate. And I think, uh, in this moment, it's important to kind of reflect what, who will actually replace them, uh, whether the spaces will remain empty, whether the regime will, you know, keep those repressions and uh, those places will have to stay completely closed and there will be no new initiatives happening because also there will be no funding for different civil society initiatives via United Nations or European Union or other international organizations. It will have much larger impact on society than we currently consider. So this political crisis affects not just, you know, political freedoms and uh, civic freedoms, but overall this... uh, how the country will develop and what we, what we will see afterward, because those initiatives really changed and shaped how young people, for example, saw their future professions, how they engaged in uh, urban kind of environment, how they consumed and, and so on. So I think uh, there is a kind of larger impact uh, and there is a larger political crisis. Um, happening in the country. This is uh, a moment of reflection as well for, for the people who might not willing to express their opinion, but this is kind of might shape the entire generation of how they engage in politics. You've been 
been listening to the Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. And I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thank you for listening and come back soon. Mm-hmm.